2: Hej och välkomna till Vinpratarna, avsnitt 91. Ja. Och avsnitt 1 på det nya året. Ja, avsnitt 1
0: 2016 kan jag säga.
2: Om ni undrar varför det kanske är lite annorlunda akustik så är det för att vi sitter på 19 glas i gamla stan. Och ja. dricker vin. Och pluggar. Och pluggar. <laughs> vi tänkte... Kika,
0: ja, vi kan säga först att vi tänkte kicka igång det här året med, som vi utlovade redan under vår julspecialet att vi ska nu ska ni få höra hela intervjun med Kelly White. Det är en lång och mastig och väldigt väldigt bra, Fantas- väldigt rolig. Och en oerhört kompetent äh, kvinna. kvinna.
2: Ja. Så sätter ni med ett glas vin ja, och ljus.
0: <laughs> Men så har vi också, eller du har en liten specialare. Ja, en, en
2: liten special. Um, det kommer en ny vinmäst i Stockholm den 18, 19 och 20 februari. Uh, som några veckor. Som heter Stockholm Wine Fair. Som ligger på Nackestands Nackestand. Mm. Uh, mässan där ute och vi tänkte, precis som vi gjorde mitt kök för två år sedan, låta ut lite härliga
0: biljetter Ja, det är ju uh, kul att få möjlighet till det
2: Precis, så det är lite såhär förstekvarn uh, Vi ställer en fråga och så mejlar ni svaret till oss på vinpratarna Ja Och det är begränsat antal, så det är, man får skynda på...
0: Hur många... Äh, ja, det säger vet vi inte. inte. Nej, jag vi inte. <laughs> ja, en, och då får man då välja vilken de här dagarna man vill gå på. Ehm, Precis. jag tror att det är helt valfritt också. Så det, ja. det, det, vinner man så kan man, kan man välja. Så att säga.
2: Torsdag, fredag eller lördag. Mm. Så vår fråga då är... Vi har ju pratat tidigare i tidigare avsnitt mycket om det här med ekologiskt och bydynamiskt mm. och alla de här olika termerna men vem är då den biodynamiska eh, odlingens fader kan man säga han ja, som, som han som uppfann biodynami
0: eller startade med det exakt, exakt. Eh,
2: och det är också lämpligt eftersom den här mässan kommer gå i lite den här ekologiska naturliga andan mm,
0: mm. så eh, om ni inte, om ni inte
2: minst det så kan ni alltid läsa på och lära lite ja, nytt ja
0: exakt exakt eh, Lura på det och mejla då till vinbraterna.gamer.com så fort ni kan. Så får Svar se som... och
2: fullständigt namn. Aha. Så hoppas vi att vi ses på mässan.
0: Ja, för du kommer vara jag kommer där ute kommer vara där. också. Jag kommer
2: vara där alla dagar och ha en litet föredrag, mm. en liten
0: vinskola ja, om
2: det här med binomiskt vin ekologiskt och ekologiskt naturligt och den här trenden.
0: Skojigt. Ja. Jag kommer säkert vara där och dricka lite vin. Så att vi ses helt enkelt. Precis, så mm.
2: enjoy intervjun.
0: Kelly White så länge så so see how it's
3: gone
0: welcome Kelly White. Some you're an author also and a NAPA expert. Is that is is that right to call you?
1: Uh
3: sure. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations on your new book release. Thank you. Napa then and now. Thank you very much. Mm. Your masterpiece. My masterpiece, yes. <laughs> So, tell us a little bit about how you got into the wine business.
1: Well, it, um, it all happened very much by accident. I was not raised with wine in my family at all. Um, in fact, there was very little alcohol in my family, not for religious reasons, but just nobody drank it. Um, and I was in college and needed a nights and weekends job that was on a certain train line in the Boston area. Um, and I actually applied at a framery. This is probably the summer after my... Uh, sophomore year college, okay. so i just turned 21, and I applied uh, on, in Beacon Hill, Boston, at a framery, and I needed full-time work for the summer, and they said, well, we're only hiring part-time, but the wine store across the street is also hiring part-time, mm-hmm. so maybe between uh. the two you could put something together, so I walked across the street, and I said, uh, you know, I don't drink, and I don't know anything about wine, but I'm strong and hard-working, <laughs> yeah. and you should hire me, and yeah. they did, and, um, and it was a very boutique shop, so there was a lot of... Um, a lot of intimate interaction with the customers, and i it was more kind of academic performance anxiety than anything else that got me studying about wine, so I went from really not drinking at all to playing around with fine wine without any of the tragic steps in between that so many teenagers uh, experience so. <laughs> so that's good yeah, <laughs> yeah
0: good. And, and when was this oh Uh,
1: this is uh two thousand one
0: okay, okay
1: okay yeah, so almost fifteen years ago I guess yeah
0: yeah
1: and uh, yeah
0: so was that that summer you you sort of yeah, that was an educative summer for you, just uh, to just go straight into the business.
1: Yeah, it was great. The owner sent me home. I've just read and tasted and went mm. to uh, all the tastings and um, found I had a natural aptitude for it. And uh, so when I got out of college, I pursued working in a, wine st- a different wine store, but a wine store full time and uh, quickly. So I was, what, 22 at this point, and I was the assistant manager of a wine cool. store in Harvard Square, Cambridge. And uh, one of my it was a it was a cute shop a little bit disorganized so mm-hmm. I kind of talked them into hiring me full time, and the, one of the first things I did was reconcile uh, all the books, mm-hmm. and inadvertently got my boss fired um, <laughs> because <laughs> there were a lot of uh, discrepancies and so oh, really, the not. owner I mean I don't yeah I know. Sure. it was a long time ago and I'm yeah. not an accountant but um, but. They ended up handing me the keys at age 22, and I became the the general manager and wine buyer, and with a staff of you know probably right. eight. So it was a very quick um, quick immersion, and then yeah. I from there I jumped into because I. It was, again, wanting to catch up and learn fast. Took the whole WSET diploma thing right away. Um, And this was in Harvard Square, Cambridge. So it was a a very young, exciting um, store. I had one of Boston's first organic wine sections and uh, um, ended up teaching classes uh, at Harvard, actually, um, later that year at age 23, the extension school um, in wine. So it was... It was a fast. It very was very fast. Really fast. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. fast.
3: So, learning by doing by someone else, and then reading in by, by nights. Yeah,
1: yeah. And then eventually I kind of thought, well, I wanted to get my hands dirty, and so I, I worked a, a harvest in Burgundy in 2005, Yeah. right before, and I, I, I was there for long enough, it was a pretty extended stay that I had to effectively quit my job to, to do it, and I thought, okay, it's okay, I'll, I'll go, I'll be in Burgundy, and I'll come back and I'll figure it out. Well, right before I left, I found out that um, the condo I rented a room in was being sold, so mm-hmm. I thought, wow screw it, I'll just move to New York. So I, from Burgundy, I secured a job uh, opening up the New York market for a small importer called Olivier Dobress, okay. who imports uh, Burgundy and Champagne. I, I don't, I'm not sure he's still in the New York market, but, um, but I opened up that market for him in, in 2005. And then uh, it was a small portfolio and very tough way to make a living with unknown 03 Burgundies. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. <laughs> but I did, you know, I did a good job. I made a lot of good contacts and ended up getting a job at Domaine Select selling oh. wine for them for a couple okay. of years before jumping into being a sommelier. So so you okay.
3: you worked Harvest in 2003? Five. Five, yeah. Uh, 2005.
1: What producer? Domaine Maillard. Yeah. They're in uh, choy les Bone. So um, they have a little bit of Corton, uh, Grand Cru, but otherwise it's, you know, they make a, a big... Um, Bourgogne Rouge, uh, some yeah. Choray Le Bon, La Serny, etc. So it was um, not a famous producer, but a really um, great family that really took me under their wing and uh, let me stay with them and let me really do things, yeah. you know. I was afraid that um, that when I got to Burgundy, they were going to baby me, you know, <laughs> because yeah. it was all men and, yeah. and I was... Uh, young and very inexperienced, but instead they were like, we're going to teach you not just how to, to, to make wine, we're going to teach you how to make wine with style. So you have to stand on the tank edge with the hose for the pump over and you've got to maintain a one inch cigarette ash at all times. <laughs> 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 so, without getting it in the wine. So. That's, it, <laughs> that's
3: cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. It was really
0: it was fun. But,
3: uh, how, did you sell a lot of burgundy at the wine stores? Uh, okay. yeah, the question is into
0: the mic. Yeah.
3: So did you sell a lot of burgundy at the wine stores or why did you chose to go there?
1: I'd, well actually my original I was going to go work for craggy range yeah and um, far away far mm-hmm. away and I was making arrangements and then right before I was getting gonna buy my ticket I found out that the winemaker passed away mm-hmm. oh. um, so that changed obviously um, was no longer appropriate mm. to, to, to go there and do that and that was very sad so I I had already quit my job. They let me stay another six months. And during that period of time... And I did sell a lot of Burgundy, yes. But during that period of time... Um, I was talking to the importer I ultimately opened New York for, and he was working with um, this Burgundy producer, Pascal Mayer, and I explained okay. that he was surprised to see me. I had quit, and he said, you know, I thought you were gone, and I said, oh, this terrible thing happened, and Pascal said, come work in Burgundy with me. So it just it just happened, and yeah. it was um, pretty special. And 2005 was a really... Um, a little bit of an anomalous year, but a very genial year in yeah. Burgundy. So I had mm. nice weather. <laughs>
0: <Very> nice. <laughs>
1: so then you moved to New York. Uh, in oh, can I just ask one more yeah. question before mm.
0: we move on in the history? Uh, when you started off uh, in, in in this store, when you just yeah, when you were twenty one, uh, were there any certain certain sty- wine styles or grapes or, or regions that that really opened your eyes?
1: Yeah, just- yeah. Actually, you know. It's very interesting because I came at it sort of uh, with a lot of ambition. I wanted to learn fast. I wanted to to learn about the best. And so my amateur's appreciation of what the best was at that time was, okay, well, that's, you know, Bordeaux and Scotch. Um, But (laughs) that's pretty, I think, a little bit unfriendly to a, a baby wine drinker. And so I was spending all of my income, basically, from the store buying young Bordeaux that I could afford, which is not the best stuff, and kind of blended scotch and I'm thinking what's <laughs> wrong with me I'm not bonding with any of this stuff and um, and so then I, I ended up I was this was the end of the towards the end of the summer and I was like okay the wine thing isn't for me but this was a nice experience mm-hmm. and then I was at a, a restaurant and uh, and I happened to order a Chetif de Pop Blanc and that was um, to me that was like the lightning hitting it was a very different. Um, array of flavors it was incredibly welcoming and um and soft and um, exotic and exciting and that was the moment that i thought okay i'm coming at this the wrong way yeah. you can't come in at the top when you're broke and have no experience okay. you need to yeah. you know build up with uh with things and now i have a great love of bordeaux and scotch but it, you know it takes, it takes some time <laughs> yeah it's like, <laughs> adjusted yeah like rough most americans and... don't start drinking coffee with espresso you know yeah. you no, no. <laughs> milk, <laughs> and milk and sugar you, yeah. you get there um so 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 yeah so that was a huge moment for me why shouldn't have pop i mm. love that great. Love
3: it's great. It.
0: yeah yeah, yeah it was really good
1: so
3: you did harvest and then you moved to new york mm-hmm. and you started with an importer mm-hmm. and how long did you work for
1: I worked for Olivier Dobrest for about a year, and then I worked for Domain Select for about two years. Okay. Um, and during this time, I also was doing, starting to write for some magazines. So first, the Organic Wine Journal and some other kind of unpaid... This was sort of pre-blog or maybe the beginning of blogs, but I was helping some stores out with their newsletters, and I was doing all that stuff. So um, I started to write a little bit more. Then I was approached by the Sommelier Journal to write for them, which was my first time writing for money, which was pretty exciting. and yeah. um, So I started to do that more and more. And then, I don't know if you know uh, Josh Nadell, the what? sommelier? Okay, so he um, he's on that new TV show on Cork. Well, he's great, he's amazing, and he was uh, at Crew, which uh, sure. was uh, Robert Bohr's kind of old place, um, and I was selling him wine, and Josh looked at me one day and he said, do you want to jump on the sommelier with me? Uh, he w- was leaving Crew to o- reopen the Oak Room, which is kind of a ah, classic okay. old New York thing. and. Um, I did not last there very long, um, within a couple weeks of, uh, with some, sometime during friends and family, they made the decision to let go half the wine staff and the bar staff. It was, it was a pretty ambitious staffing and I had no experience in restaurants, so I was the first to go. Um, but what happened there that was great is that, um, now I had kind of committed, restructured my life with the thought that I'm going to be a sommelier now. And um so I was looking around for other things and Veritas, Patrick Capiello mm. left Veritas. They needed a new sommelier. And Tim Kopek prefers to work with unexperienced inexperienced sommeliers because he wants to, you know, train them Build in his them in his okay. way. Okay. Exactly, okay. not inherit mm. somebody else's yeah. uh patterns. So, Josh, you know, called Kopec and put in a good word for me, and I was the first uh, female sommelier that restaurant had had, and Fantastic. it had been open for 10 years at around this wow. time. Okay. And that was really life-changing. That was incredibly life-changing. So this must have been, like, in
3: 2007? This
1: is the end of eight.
3: End of eight, okay. Yeah,
1: so I'd been selling wine in uh, New York for three years. And then the end of eight, I jumped on it at Veritas, and um, and that was uh, very intense, A very very that intense. That time
3: in New York was also that was economic yeah crisis and
1: in yeah. some ways Turbulence, it was yeah. it was difficult. It it was good for me, I think, because business was slow ish. It was still um, selling more incredible landmark Burgundy, Bordeaux, Rhone, Champagne than I had ever seen or will probably see again. Um, but the pace was such that I could really study and take it in. Yeah. Um, but I, I, again, you know, came at the Veritas list was huge. It was one of the biggest lists in New York at the time, and it was probably the best burgundy list in the city. And so I had a list at home, and I had my Clive Codes coat code door, and all of my, all <laughs> of my book. and Parker's own book, and all of my books, and I would wake up in the morning and I would, I would uh, study until I got to work, and then I would quiz Yoshi and Kopeck for, um, for information, and then that night I would sell wine, and I would take notes, and I would go home and write out my notes, and this was, um, again, just a total immersion. So I was there for a little under two years, and um, while I was there, uh, Kopeck stepped down as wine director, and then, um, I mean, he was still the wine director, but he stepped off the floor. Mm. And so um, I became the head sommelier mm. There, which was pretty cool, and then we hired actually uh, one of your guys now, uh, Ruben Sans Ramiro. Great guy. Um, I, I want to <laughs> say he s- effectively stepped in, um, he became, he took Kopec shifts effectively. Mm. So Ruben and I worked for together for a little while, now he's here in Sweden. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a small, small, very interconnected wine world.
3: Nice. Okay, so you lived in New York for
1: f- five, five years, years. Yeah.
3: and then you moved to Napa.
1: Yeah, we moved to Napa. I I started dating um, another sommelier, which you know I said I would never do. <laughs> it's hard. It's not uh, to. Yeah, <laughs> hard it's to resist. Yeah, I, yeah, it's like a car accident. No, no. But um, uh, I started dating Scott and. Um, as much as I loved Veritas, and that's a place where the assembly stayed, like, really long ten years. I want to say wow. Josh had been there probably five, six, seven, eight years, maybe. Yoshi that's had been there five years. For the Patrick, five years. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. that kind of a place. You know, it was pretty special. Yeah. So I took that job thinking, I'm going to be there for five years. You know, this is my commitment. But the restaurant really quickly started to feel like it was going to close. There were you know, management issues, and the economy was just frustrating, and nobody saw the light at the end of the tunnel, and um, this was sort of the uh, the 99% uh, kind of riots and demonstrations, and it was yeah. just a very uncertain time, and so Scott and I, Scott had been a assembly for 20 years at this point, we started to kind of have a what's next conversation, and we decided that we wanted to maybe learn how to make wine. So, um, so I left Veritas, and then it really did close very shortly um, thereafter. Um, and we uh, got a job in Napa. Uh, be co- yeah, as co-wine directors of a yeah. of a restaurant called Press in St Helena. Yeah. and that's
3: very unique as well to be a couple in it, like yeah. the same position.
1: Yeah, I really Maybe. thought that it was a bad idea. I remember Scott <laughs> I sort that. of sprung it on me because we thought that we thought that we'd be moving there and we would take turns working. Yeah. Uh, I'd get a job and he'd work harvest. He'd get a job and I'd work harvest. I mean. Now, looking back, how would that have even worked? We'd be changing jobs all the time. But that was that was what we thought was how it was going to go down. Uh, but the restaurant was very couples-friendly. The At the time, the chef and the GM were married. Mm-hmm. And so um, Scott knew had met Leslie through Oriole, because he was the wine director of Oriole for a long time. And um, Leslie... Uh, offered him the job, and then without asking me, Scott said, well, you know, that sounds like a 60, 70 hour a week job, and uh, and I'm, I'm moving out there to, to, to learn wine, but my girlfriend's also suddenly, what do you think, and they had no problem with it, so he comes, I came home, because I worked later than he did when I was at Veritas, and, um, and he said, so, uh, you know, what do you think? I think I got us a job sharing a swine directorship. <laughs> I said, "Oh God, that's gonna be an expensive breakup. <laughs> I mean, move across the country." So, but it, but it, but it really worked out.
0: But, but when you um, when you moved to, to Napa, I mean, now you've written this book that we're gonna come back to. But when you moved to Napa. Uh, how much were you into Napa wines, or and, and how did you, so, uh, so to speak, how do you approach uh, the, the Napa w- wines?
1: Well, to be honest with you, I was really scared to move to Napa because I didn't know much about Napa, and I didn't think I wanted to know much. I, um, I really spent this very intensive time in my career focused, even when I was selling wine on, on European wines and European wines of a certain style and classic wines and. I was much more interested in that, and I thought, "Oh boy, you know Napa's. It's just going to be a means to an end. We'll move there. We'll stay there for two years. We'll learn as much as we can winemaking, and then we'll we'll go somewhere where we like the wines more." And um, I just didn't even know what I didn't know. You know, it was it, I. I it, it's much more complex and exciting uh, place with much more wine, diversity in wine to offer than I knew. So when we Moved there and I was scared. I wanted to. We were taking over an all Napa wine list, and I tried to buy like the book, you know, and study, yep. and uh, we didn't find it. So there was already this idea that there was a possibility for like a kind of a classically written regional profile. And uh, in my head, when we got there and uh, and yeah, so so we did all the research ourselves, okay, and yeah. soon the idea for this book took shape and
3: when you took the job at press, how was the wine situation there at that time?
1: Uh, it was a gr- you know it was a good little wine list, but it was a single page i, I don 't know I want to say it was two hundred selections, yeah. and the owner of the restaurant um, wanted specifically to create the quote the world 's best Napa wine collection because he was frustrated with. Uh, California wine lists because he would travel to Bordeaux. He travels, he's a very big traveler, travel to Bordeaux and you go to restaurants in Bordeaux and the wine lists are basically all Bordeaux sure. and you go to Burgundy and the wine lists yeah. are all Burgundy yeah. and so he would come to California and he would be eating at restaurants in Napa Valley and be looking at pretty much exclusively international wine lists uh, with a little bit of Napa you
0: yeah. know, in there, maybe yeah.
1: more than other restaurants might in other parts of the world, but, but still it was, and he just thought that that was really unfortunate and that there should be more internal promotion of the region so that was his vision and we were um we thought this is going to be really hard because you know it's just going to be a list of the thousand giant cabernets um and that's why we started looking first in the into the old vintages and so we we the what the wine list has since become known for and it grew, grew grew slowly but it's now over two thousand selections going back to the nineteen forties, um, and and w- the restaurant sells now probably more old wine than current release, and uh, and that's huge. That's really cool. cool. Very unique. Yeah, and very um, unique.
3: Are, are there any other places in California that that's what you do or tries? You know, to buy older vintages? So. Well,
1: the only place that I think is really comparable is probably Burns Steakhouse. They have a lot of old Napa.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, they're they're probably, you know, up there with us mm-hmm. uh, as far as... But, but within wine country, some restaurants have some old stuff. Uh, but it was kind of felt more accidental. Like sure. they've been oh, sitting yeah. on this inventory <coughs> for a long time. And now, though it's totally different. Now, five years later, we're seeing um, other sommeliers from Napa Valley at our auctions where we used to be the only ones. Yeah. Okay. You know, and we, we, there's much more interest um, in older California wine, even in New York and, and and abroad, than there was five years ago. Five years ago it was, it was generally quote unquote known that California wines don't age. Now I'm seeing the wines a lot more everywhere, which is really cool. So you and nice. Scott have been a part of the change as well, and I think so. Yeah. And a, and a lot of the major critics started to do retrospective tastings, and they're just something just clicked, and the tide just sort of shifted. And now I think people are recognizing, sommeliers recognizing sommeliers that have that take issue with the heft and the price of Napa's current releases are. Finding um, both financial value and a more um, let's call it sommelier-friendly style in the older wines. So, um, so yeah, there there's definitely um, it's more of a fit, I think. Mm. You know.
0: But how how has um, uh, the Napa changed uh, during during time? I mean, from like the '50s or '60s until now. What are the main differences when it comes to? And, and, the stylistic uh, differences. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, They're pretty. And also
0: the business side of it. I mean, uh, of course, how uh, how, um, how big is it today compared to then? And I mean, uh, yeah.
1: Huge, huge it, question. Yeah, yeah it's, so a big difference, <laughs> it's a big,
0: big, big question. We just take take the main.
1: Uh, well, as I as I dug into the the old wines, it kind of led me naturally into the history of the valley and it's a part of a lot, a big part of what I focused the book on. Um, I was shocked to learn that, you know, in the 1880s when the California wine industry was just kind of getting in a, in its first real, um, in its stride, yep. they had, you know, over a hundred wineries and tens of thousands of acres under vine and, um, the wines were being internationally celebrated. And then, you know, we had prohibition mm. in yeah. the, in the teens and twenties and early thirties. And, um, and those numbers from the 1880s weren't seen again until the 1980s, so it took a hundred years to recover. So the recovery wow. was real slow. So um, Prohibition was repealed in '33. Some wineries started back up again, the more established ones like Bolio Vineyards and Beringer, et cetera. And they all had issues with um, quality control because wow. their equipments, their barrels, the uh, had had really um, suffered from mm. misuse uh, or disuse, and then the vineyards also changed a lot. The premium varieties were ripped up and replaced with mostly um, Petit Sera, Zinfandel, Carignan, etc. So, um, so the it was a bit of a PR disaster, mm. um, and uh, it and people were a lot of people were discouraged so there was sort of this rush to reopen wineries after prohibition and then a lot of them immediately closed again because of the economic situation yeah and just because they you know it was there was a kind of a there wasn't as good of an understanding of microbiology as there is now, so the wines were being released to the market flawed and were being returned, and it was a disaster. And that really changed when um, Bolio Vineyards brought Andre Chelichov from Paris, yeah. because he was a classically trained winemaker with uh, d- extensive sort of chemical and, bio- and uh, microbiological in- uh, knowledge.
0: Mm-hmm. He
1: really kind of cleaned up uh, the operation at both at BV and also critically he was really um, open with his knowledge so he helped he shared it with other winemakers at the time and and kind of collectively they all sort of figured it out um, how to you know get back to making quality wine and like a stable product um, and then in the 40s and the 50s you see a trickle of new blood Stony Hill opened up around this time myamimas reopened uh, was reborn as myamimas and um, uh, and then the, really, but still it was, um, difficult work. You know, there was maybe like a dozen, a couple dozen wineries at this time. There wasn't necessarily a huge market for these wines. It was a little bit, uh, it was a big risk, you know, it was a little bit of a dreamers kind of folly. Uh, it worked out for a lot of them, but, but, but it was, it was tough, tough, uh, very prospective work. And then... The 60s, that started to change. You see, you know, Heights opening and all these guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and the wines from the 60s and the 70s are, are beautiful. Um, though there were more wineries opening around this time, there were still a lot of European winemakers, or the wines seemed <coughs> to be made valley-wide with a little bit more, like, uh, depth and intuition. And, yeah. um And and it was really the, the Judgment of Paris in 1976, uh, which brought in a lot of new blood to Napa. So things got, as far as numbers of wineries and acres under vines, things really exploded in the mid, late 70s and, and 80s. Yeah. Really took off.
0: And the judgment of Paris was actually, actually that important. It was really
1: important, yeah. yeah. It, you know, it's interesting because um, a lot of things were going on in the, in the 70s that brought new vintners to Napa Valley. It wasn't just the judgment of Paris, but that was... Almost like a the final excuse that some people needed, but there was a there was a there was a movement in the U.S. I don't know if it was the same here, but kind of the 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 hippie movement was mm-hmm. was taking a lot of the young um, intellectuals out of the cities and away from the office jobs and out of the mm-hmm. office, and they wanted to get into the country, and it was this sort of back to earth movement, and so. Um, people were leaving the cities and the suburbs and and picking up farms and things and you know the story of like Warren Winiarski you know almost became an apple farmer instead you know yep. he just had this idea to <laughs> yeah. to, to go and work <laughs> yeah. the land and John Mother nature exactly and that's that that was happening and then and then the judgment of Paris happened and then at some point um, Bank of America which was an early um, believer in the California wine industry put out some sort of um, annual report for their, uh, for their members that said the future of California wine looks bright. And like a lot of guys, like, uh, Tom Burgess, you know, was in the air force and he got a copy of that and he thought, Oh, I could go to California to be a winemaker. It's, I like that weather, you know? So, (laughs) so there was, there was just a lot of things pushing people to Napa at that time. Um, but, but, uh, and the wines are fabulous. I mean, personally, for me, the '70s is the real golden era. The wines now are in this amazing spot where they're aged and some are mature, but they're not uh, overmature. Mm-hmm. Um, they still have great uh, flavor and freshness and, and um, vitality, but they're but there's balance. And you know, I'm I was not old. I was not born when these wines were being released, but um, I talked to people that were that were around, and they said they were very tannic and kind of aggressive, intense wines mm-hmm. at the time. Maybe they, you know, needed all this time to get good, but they are good now. That's undeniable.
3: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen To go back a little bit how you built the wine list, yeah. uh, since you have so much focus on like, the 60s and 70s and so forth, how did you start? Like, what channels did you have when you came to Napa? How
1: well, we, we had an idea of older Napa wine, but we didn't know how good it would be and who was good necessarily. Yeah. So we started with the obvious places. We went to Dunn, uh, Corison, Mykommas um who else Grace mm-hmm. uh, a couple of other people and basically you know said please would you sell us from your library <laughs> yes. um and bec- I think in part because of out of curiosity but also in part because of the bad economy at the time um, they were to happy to sell the inventory and then um and then we got it f- our first kind of like big break was um the Barney Road seller came available uh, and we bought a big chunk of it Barney Road was the guy that owned uh, Bella Oaks and he mm-hmm. was a big part of um, big part of California's rising esteem in Europe. He was very good friends with Michael Broadbent and if you read Broadbent's tasting notes book, there's not a lot from California, but what was there, you know, he thanks Barney Rhodes for okay. personally bringing him to California, taking him around. So this was a this was a guy who was a Bon vivant, he was a wine collector and he was really tied up in the industry especially in Europe and his cellar was perfect. The condition on these bottles is was was like they were brand new and they were it was obviously a lot of heights going back to the 60s which was thrilling and then um but also this and that from all over the valley we bought a big chunk of it when we saw the condition and and it was amazing and that was really kind of then we were off to the races and uh we got some press early on um specifically john benet did a big piece on our wine list and it seemed to send out a message among like older collectors that maybe were thinking about selling their wine to reach out to us and so now we we get uh, propositioned by or scott does i'm not really at the restaurants a whole lot anymore um people reach out to us all the time mm. hey i'm gonna sell my cellar and you know generally speaking these wines haven't moved they're either coming direct from the winery or from local collectors so this that's traveled only a couple miles in its life so we have very good luck with the quality and we work hard to keep the prices low, and it's just been a kind of a winning combination.
0: Sounds fantastic. Yeah, it does.
3: Um, so you got the idea of writing a
1: book uh, quite early on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was in Burgundy, actually, yeah. which is a strange, right? Um, <laughs> I don't think most people would put Napa Forget and Burgundy me. together, yeah. but yeah, I went back to Burgundy, and I was um, staying with the Wassermans, and they just, you know, I think, Becky Wasserman has a kind of, like, fairy dust for writers. Um, and I was thinking about it, thinking about it. Alan Meadows was there, and he received the print, the proof copy of his Von Romane Pearl of the Coat book. So it was a first copy he had seen and touched, yeah. and that was really special to, to witness. And it was self-published, and he, you know, we talked about it, and talked about it with Becky, and I wasn't sure... Um, if the book made sense, I knew it would be a big project. And Becky started to tell people that came through, oh, this is Kelly. She's writing a book on Napa.
0: (laughs) No turning back. Yeah, and that was sort of like, okay,
1: it's happening. Um, And I came back and I put together a business plan and I approached the owner of the restaurant um, for funding. And um, and, yeah, five years later, here we are.
0: And can you tell us about about the book for people who uh, hasn't actually read it or uh, had it in in their hands? Yeah. What's the... What's it about? I mean, tell talk us through it.
1: It's a big book. It's um, it's twelve hundred pages and um, weighs about five kilos, I think. So. Wow! So it's a big, it's a big, yeah. it's a big guy. Um, I wanted to make it a reference book, but also sort of a beautiful reference book. Since is yeah, it's very pretty. Yeah, and I, it's well designed, and there's beautiful photography in it. But I think that's part of what makes it a little bit on the large side. <laughs> um, but it is set up in a kind of a classical model so it opens with um, a lot of history and then um, detailed appellation information uh, 200 producer profiles with extensive tasting notes historic tasting notes and then a vintage chart so um, you know I what I wanted to do with the book was sort of it's almost written for like a uh sommelier because that doesn't, you know, appreciate the full diversity of Napa. So it there's an emphasis on history with the producers that are selected, but also on diversity. So I wanted to not everybody's in there. You know, I thought for a while about writing a book where, you know, it had every winery, but then it would be little entries without the level of detail yeah. I wanted. So I decided okay. instead mm-hmm. to focus on what I thought were some of the most important estates and also that represented categories well. So there is more um, what we call in the U.S. broad market brands like um, Camus and Rombauer in there because they have really important stories and um, and and then there's um, you know more historic estates like Berenger and Schramsberg etc. and then there's some new guys too and then there's a bit at the end on uh, kind of the new wave that's happening and so I tried to really paint a picture of diversity both in terms of style and length of history and of uh, price actually because mm. price is a, a hot issue in napa wines
0: i think yeah. so so um uh and 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 is it self-published as well?
1: It is it's self-published.
0: And you're right now when we're doing an interview, you're you're on a sort of a book tour. Or...
1: Yep, I'm on a book tour, and and I'm writing to uh, I'm recording this in Sweden, so that's pretty yeah. exciting for me because um I didn't appreciate the market for Napa wines, especially the old Napa wines in in uh, Scandinavia. It was so strong at the time. And then over the last several years, we've had members of the Scandinavian trade in our restaurant. Almost every week, and okay. it's it's been so exciting, and I've made all these connections in um, in Denmark and in Sweden, especially, uh, and a little bit a little bit in other Scandinavian countries. and uh, And I can't. It's been such a warm reception. It's been amazing. I would have assumed that the market for the book was was would be really restricted to the United States, mm. but it's been very international.
3: So I think we should just touch on the subject a little bit about the new wave that's yeah. going on. Could you yeah. explain or what your point of view?
1: About sure. The um, yeah. So that was that was exciting. So I got to Napa in, in 2010, which if you look at um, the new wave, with with the exception of guys like Skolian and Project that have a longer history, that was really when. A lot of these brands were getting started. That was right around the time I think Masacon started in 2009, Dirty and Rowdy maybe started in 10, I think. Um, you know, uh, a lot of these, these new brands um, were just getting started. And so it was really intoxicating, actually, because I... Th- these guys are totally rethinking um california wine in a very interesting way not only are they approaching it from like n- new perspective but they are also very historically minded so it really gelled with what scott and i were doing um and you know while we were there that's the that's i think the time when when john benet was getting really behind he released his book a couple years ago and getting really behind the new california movement and he was writing about it in the Chronicle and. It was cool because, um, when I was first meeting these young winemakers and tasting their wines, I didn't necessarily think there was the brightest commercial future. Like it was very cool and like, oh sommeliers are gonna love this. And to have that like promotion, I saw I, it was wonderful to see them, I think, achieve a certain um, notoriety and appreciation. So that's been really cool. Generally speaking, what, the way I think of the new California movement or these new guys is, it's these younger winemakers that are, that are maybe operating generally speaking outside of Napa. Mm-hmm. Napa is a pretty expensive place to do business, or they're operating outside of the Cabernet Uve. So there's because um, Calf- Cabernet is actually kind of new to Napa Valley in a sense. It wasn't the dominant grape until ninety two. So. Napa has a big, rich history of diverse grapes, okay? It's not just Cabernet. But now we think of just Napa equals Cabernet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And these these new guys that are coming along are saying, well, not necessarily, you know. What about this? What about that? So there's really exciting Albarinos and Ribola Jellas and crazy white blends and other um, uh, old vines, Infandels, and, you know, these things being being uh, examined because there's a lot of Cabernet planted in land in Napa Valley that isn't necessarily great Cabernet land, but it's the crop that brings the most money, so it's what the farmer is more or less like financially obliged to do. So to have this interest from these guys and these sort of, quote-unquote, more marginal varieties is pretty exciting, and um, I think it'll be what kind of keeps the diversity in Napa alive.
0: Cool. It's very interesting. Very, very interesting. <laughs>
3: You spoke a little bit uh, earlier when we had the tasting a couple of days ago about the ageability. Yeah. Um, We tried mostly Cabernets, but uh, that the wines from the 50s and 60s and 70s, that they have aged with such grace. Yeah. Um, And you showed a little bit, you were a little bit worried that the wines made in the 90s uh, will not... Age as well because of different techniques. Yeah,
1: yeah, I do. I do. You know, as there's so many reasons. It's uh, climate change, changes in farming, changes in consumer preference, critical response that has resulted in um, kind of increasing ripeness over the years. I think probably like the apogee was sort of oh four oh six of just super ripe wines made in Napa. Um, these are going to have much shorter lifespans, um, you know, and, and I, tr- I know my preferences for older wines. I don't try to force that on other people. So, you know, for a lot of people, that's probably totally legitimate and fine. You know, why do you need, how long does Cabernet need to age? Um, personally, um, you know, the seventies, sixties, seventies, fifties aged beautifully and they're really, uh, many of them are at their peak or just beginning their peak now. Um, the eighties was a little bit of a, a, a Gear shift, um, mm. a little bit more clinical winemaking. You start to see more like uh, kind of university trained winemakers using a more scientific approach. So you see more acidification, you see more filtration. And the wines, some wines are glorious from the 80s, but some of them are really not aged well because of all the tinkering. Mm. Um, and then in response to these sort of leaner, drier wines that were popular in the 80s, um, Critics started to complain about that, and things got a little bit riper in the 90s. Of course, we also had a big phlox or infestation at the end of the 80s. So when we were making wine in the early 90s, it was generally speaking on new new, uh, vines, new vineyards, Mm -hmm. made with really clean clonal material, planted in a modern style that was lifted from Bordeaux that resulted in kind of higher sugars, because Bordeaux was a very different climate than... Napa. So, you know, in the 90s, things slowly increased. I still see the, I'm very fond of the wines from the mid and and early 90s. I think that's sort of a, was a, what I call it, like a genial ripeness. Mm -hmm. Um, Things didn't really get crazy, in my opinion, until like 2001 um, and on, though um, 97 is a, a, a weird, you know, anomaly. We can talk about that. 94 was ripe, but really still... The wines from the 90s, especially the earlier in the decade, for me, drink very well. They're Yes, they're riper. They're a little bit more smooth. They're a little bit lower in acidity than the wines from the 70s and, and, uh, and before. But they're still really beautiful, balanced wines with a lot of freshness. I'm constantly surprised going back and tasting things from 91, 90, 93, 95, 96, how um, beautiful and lifted and fresh these wines are. And they're really, at this point, just speaking totally generally, now, just kind of getting to around 14% alcohol, which I think is, like, a comfortable place yeah. for Cabernet from a modern climate. You know, many of the older ones were made even less. But 14, I'm not mad at yet, you know. still <laughs> That still works. Yeah. Um, but then in the 2000s, things really went crazy. And um, I was at a tasting the other day where where they opened up an old... Turley's Infidel that was listed on the label as 17.1% alcohol yeah, from this era. And then, you know, and a lot of the big uh, cult Cabernets were pulling in like 15 plus percent alcohol mm. wines. and And the market was going crazy. There was a lot of positive feedback for those yeah. wines. And then you also started to see, which I just think is just the way of life. You know, it's like parents hate their kids. Kids hate their parents' music and etc. Yeah. You started to see uh, a backlash against that style at, in the the Sommelier community and in, you know more European people. It became kind of a di- a point of of divisiveness. Yeah. Um, these monster wines in the two thousands. Monster uh,
0: wines. I like, I like okay. the expression, monster yeah. wines. Monster <laughs> wines. <laughs> and some of them are very is.
1: good. And you know, and some of the more classic producers like Tony Kors and Dunn, Forman, Mycoms, etc. totally stayed their course and did not succumb. Um, but then there's a lot of really fleshy, flabby wines made in that decade that are already starting to decline. And um, there's... And I think, you know, that style has its fans and it always will. And I think it commands a lot of money because they're very showy wines. So I don't see that style really going away in a major way. I think that's fine. Um, that's not for everybody but it does have its camp so why not Um, but I do think those wines will not age as well as the more classically made wines you know you need tannin you need freshness you need acidity um, and when the wine is harvested that ripe uh, it doesn't really have a lot of places to go in the bottle exactly it's sad
3: uh, too when you know the price yeah what you pay for one bottle it can be extreme yeah
1: it's very high and, and you know and I think that that's one of the biggest issues as somebody who's be, went from being sort of afraid of Napa to being a little bit of a Napa advocate, one of the biggest problems that I have with Napa today is that so many producers raise their price every year. Yeah. I just see that as being really um, just a bad idea. Yeah. Every time you do, every time you raise your price, you're incrementally raising the average age of your drinker you know and and so true yeah and what are you going to how are you going to get this next generation and why why isn't anybody worried about that and Mm -hmm. um you know the the people that i meet especially on this trip in in europe and these sommeliers i see what they respond to um and not just sommeliers but also consumers over here and then in some places in the u.s where i've been and a lot of people are kind of getting tired of the money and the ripeness, and they're more interested in other things. And people are leaving Napa and looking at other parts of the world for more that offers more value. Mm. I think mm. there's very little value in Napa at the top end. Unfortunately, unfortunately, yeah. I think there's very good wines made there yeah. too, but but you're going to pay for it. Yeah, um, and. That's why it's so interesting when you see the
3: wine list, that press, because Mm. you can find so much value from the 70s and 60s and 80s.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're probably the only wine list in the world where the older wines are cheaper than the new releases. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. So... Um, could you tell us a little bit, you have other projects going on? Yes, um. in uh, in February I joined Venice. Yeah, congratulations. Uh, thank you very much. That's been um, great. Uh, and I'm uh, very much uh, admiring Antonio Galloni's website and his business model and kind of general approach to the wine industry. And so it's a pretty small team, so it still feels really cool um, uh, to be, it feels elite yeah. A, a yeah, yeah, Elite team. Uh, no, it's it's wonderful, and and I'm not reviewing wine um, for the magazine. I'm doing more. Uh, I guess you couldn't even call it a magazine. The yeah. website. Yeah. Um, I'm it's doing, a great website. Yeah, I yes. like it a lot. So I'm doing more videos and yeah. broader education pieces and sort of more um, profiles, Profile yeah. storytelling, and and that's great. Uh, and it's wonderful. I think it speaks highly to the business that really financially I think a lot of these these websites and operations it's reviews that drive the site they make sure. they make it um, financially viable so to hire somebody to write to pay somebody a salary to write that's not reviewing wine I think is really um, cool and speaks very highly to um, their commitment to the, the higher craft you know yeah.
3: And you told me that you and your um, and Scott yeah uh, are making wine too. Have
1: yeah, we fun- did. We 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 did. we fulfilled. We made good on our promise, and we started in two thousand and eleven making wine under a label called Houndstooth, which really hasn't been released yet, mostly because we're bad at paperwork. But um, <laughs> if, if you want wine, it's available at PMB2, right? <laughs> oh God. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a little bit. Um, but but I but since I joined Venice, I've now stepped back from Houndstooth. So okay. it's now just Scotts' baby. Um and he was always more of the driving winemaker sure. uh anyway but um but yeah I I mean obviously I'm very uh prejudiced but I think sure. God is the super talented winemaker. Uh, what what grape for is- Oh, uh, we do we've done uh, Pinot p- Noir since the beginning. Um and now, Chardon- and Chardonnay since nearly the beginning, and then two years ago we added Barbera from Amador. That's cool. Yeah, because we're big, both big fans. We of like Barbera. Oh, yeah. Oh, I love Barbera. Yeah. We especially love the old um, uh, Martini Barberas. Sure. So we had this idea to do uh, Mountain Barbera, um, that was hopefully ageable like the way the Martini Barberas were, and. And we were all excited. We found high elevation Barbera fruit and we were going to make it in this like really nervy like gutsy way. And then um, when I saw Mike Martini at a later date I mentioned to him I said you know we love the p- the barberas your dad made so much that we've now started making a Barbera and he said oh yeah but ours was half Petiscera <laughs> <laughs> we just didn't put it on the label I thought oh <laughs> now we have to, have get to- well, now we gotta find some Petisceras <laughs> so now I'm now we're looking maybe a little bit Scott's mm-hmm. Scott's not convinced yeah. but I think that he should uh, he should totally go all in on the full Martini homage and <laughs> uh, and find yeah. some Petiscera to blend in there
3: but that was more more common uh, before that they added. Um, other grapes to boost color and boost yeah. acidity.
1: And Not just other. in California. I mean, obviously, you hear everywhere. stories everywhere. Yeah, everywhere but yeah. but before things were regulated, California was really wild. Like uh, uh, I'm p- constantly pulling weird bottles out of the cellar um, that have the c- craziest, corniest things on the back labels. Yeah. Um, we had a wine from Ridge that was... How was it? It was a non-vintage Napa Cab. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but it was definitely an older bottle. And so... Yeah. You know, he—I don't know if you've seen—he has that what's the, a, the ATP club, the sort of um, not the broad market wines, but they make a lot of, or they have made in the past, a lot of limited production yeah. wines, more experimental mm-hmm. wines yeah. for their for their mailing list. So we've bought a lot of those over the years, and they always come with a letter by Paul Draper on the yeah. side, written, and this said something like, "We we were only able to sort of figure out maybe the vintages." The letter was <laughs> the letter was dated I want to say like 1983, and it said. Three years ago, I made a Cabernet that was too lean, and I left it in the barrel, and it never, uh, it never got charming. It never got, so I just w- sat on it. Uh, last year, I made a wine that was too ripe, and so I blended them together. And here you go, oh, but it God. doesn't say, you know, what the vintages are. It just says like wow. signed Paul Draper, like 1984, whatever it was. And eventually, <laughs> you try the wine. Yeah, it was yeah. wonderful. And eventually, <laughs> we figured out that it was I think 80 and 82 or 80 okay. and 83 blended together, and you know. I love that story. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah that's a good there's one, a right. lot of stuff like that. There's yeah. a lot of um there's a lot of mystery meat in the old uh California wines. Yeah. We I I had a um 1971 Sterling Pinot Noir on the list, yeah. which was actually oddly very good. Um not life-changing, but really very tasty in a simple kind of a way, and it was fruit that came from the Three Palms vineyard,
3: yep. which mm.
1: is, you know, a hot place and that's where mm. merlot is, but it's most people would say too hot for Pinot Noir, but back in the day, everything was planted everywhere, and so the back label said, uh, "Last year, the wine was so earthy. We decided to label it as Beaujolais, but this year <laughs> it's more fruity. So is this Pinot Noir?" That's but it's it like, so yeah. it's like okay, before the rules, yeah, before yeah, the, yeah there yeah, were no. Yeah. You could just do anything, yeah. and I kind of miss that a little bit. Like it's
0: as it, long as it's good. Yeah, yeah as long so as it's it, good, yeah. you know
1: why not? Why not blend vintages? Uh, you know, Spring Mountain Vineyard. Back when Mike Robbins was making them in the '70s and '80s, was constantly blending vintages yeah. together. And mm. the, I think to the benefit of the wine. I mean, you know, it's it's very rigid to think that it's okay in champagne and it's okay in sherry and it's okay in a yeah. lot of dessert wines to blend vintages, but you can't do it with still red yeah. wine. I don't yeah. see why that is. You know.
3: You served us some really old, uh, was it Muscat or something very sweet? Oh yeah, uh, that,
1: we yeah, the that was um, the BV Muscat de Frontignan. That was yeah, and we don't know fantastic. how old that wine is. Uh, it was. It was, um, all we knew is that we, when we bought the case, which came in old apothecary bottles, we bought a, two full cases from a private collector. There was a stamp on the box that said something like shipped in the 77. Wow. So we know that the wine, which is a dessert wine, a fortified muscat, which yeah. was once white and is now quite brown. Um, so but Tony Port. Yeah, like a Tony yeah. Port. Okay,
0: was that okay? Yeah. That brown. Yeah. So it was great.
1: Yeah, it wasn't brown, brown, but it was like a tea color, yeah, yeah, exactly. and uh, and and so beautiful, and still so much a city, and so fun, and we still don't know what the vintage
0: was. <laughs> delicious, delicious. delicious you know. That's what matters.
1: So, uh, thank you very much,
3: Kelly, for yeah, this thank you for uh, interview, thank you. and thank you for coming to Sweden and to
0: yeah, and visiting visiting Vinbrotana. Exactly. As yeah, well. Really nice talking to you. If
1: our listeners want to uh, buy your book, yes, online Amazon. Uh, no Amazon. Uh, you can either buy it direct from my website if you're in the U.S. or near the U.S., uh, which is Napa then and now.com, or We if, will put a link in the yeah. episode as well. Yeah, yeah and, and if you are in Europe, um, you can buy it from KKWine.com uh, okay. uh, in Denmark, and he'll ship it to you, uh, which is much less than shipping it from the U.S., so yeah. that, I recommend that. That's five <laughs> <Okay>. kilos. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> so Great. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank
3: you, guys.